Psalm 119. Verse 105 through 112, familiar words. It will be wonderful for us to walk through tonight. Coming to this next stanza entitled Noon. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. We've entitled our study tonight, Truth for Life. Truth for Life. Some of you in this room might be familiar with a child's cartoon that was produced in 1981 through 1983. A Christian child's cartoon by the name of Superbook. Any of you here tonight remember Superbook? Maybe a few raising their hands, a few, a few in the crowd. I don't know exactly who produced it. I just remember growing up in my household with older siblings. We had several VHS tapes. I think there are some younger people in here, maybe. Uh, This contraption that you put into your VHS player, you press play, long before, of course, streaming or YouTube or Blu-ray, you name it. You remember VHS. In our household, we had these tapes. Maybe some of you watched it, this child's cartoon that was produced. Um, Admittedly, looking back at it, maybe a little corny, a little cheesy, but it was an attempt, an effort to reach children. Specifically, you had uh, the professor, I believe. There was a boy. There was a girl. There was this robot named Gizmo. And by means of Superbook, they would be transported by believing in it to its different scenes, being there present, observing the stories. And of course, what was the Superbook? Well, you have it open in front of you. Bible. That was the whole point of this child's cartoon trying in this animated fashion to teach and to show children, here is the super book, and if you believe it, here are all the wonderful things you get to see and experience. And so these young children, uh, Christopher and Joy, they then would open it and be transported back, mainly Old Testament accounts. They're observing all that takes place, again, with this robot, I don't know why. Who knows? I just remember it. While that cartoon might be cheesy, we can at least appreciate the name given to that series. 
Superbook. Because what we have in front of us is indeed the most super book. We've been spending week after week on Wednesday nights in all the different ways the psalmist, whoever it might be, holds up God's word, how he treasures it, how he loves it, this most precious book. Each section, like different sides and angles, looking at it, looking at it, all the truth that he's taking in. And of course, the psalmist very much in everyday life, all of the pressure, all of the temptations, all of the challenges, the trials, the suffering. And yet through all of it, he's clinging to this super book. What we have is truth for life. Tonight we come to another section that shows us the glory of this super book. But I think even looking at this section, there are some clear things that arise up that we can see tonight and behold, in fact, borrowing language from Peter to stir us up by way of reminder that we tonight maybe in a fresh way would see how wonderful, how super this book is, and it's super because it's supernatural. It's super because this isn't just like any other book. This book is written, breathed out by God himself. In fact, to help us remind ourselves with your finger in Psalm 119, because this is mainly where we will be tonight, flip over to the New Testament to 2 Timothy Because something comes up in 2 Timothy that I think helps us as we will in a moment go back to Psalm 119. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, very important words, words we ought to commit to memory, words we ought to underline and have marked and starred in our Bible. Even even to think the way that the Bible looks at and views itself. To make sure that we look at the Bible the way it looks at itself. How God intends us to see it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Familiar. Again, we ought to commit it to memory. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation might say inspired trying to capture the real sense it's breathed out. God's very speech, its source, its origin, it's from God. It bears inherently its divine authority. It's super supreme authority. We need to cling to that and remember that, but do you remember the next word? What else do we learn about this super book, Scripture? It's profitable. Profitable for what? Paul tells us four terms. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And why? To what end? So that Verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. These two verses here is Scripture's authority 
At the end, here is its sufficiency, and right in the middle, to use a familiar word, its utility. It's profitable. It has several purposes. Paul outlines four. One purpose, teaching. Another purpose, reproof. A third purpose, correction. A fourth, training in righteousness. Paul here helping us to see we can look at Scripture that it has several uses. In different ways and in different passages, it functions in these four different categories. It teaches us. It reproves us, showing us how we're in error. It corrects us, bringing us back onto the right path and being trained in righteousness, like directing us and pushing us, keeping us on the path on which we ought to go. What God says is right, good, and true. We see a display of this reality. It's profitability, those fourfold uses. When we look back into our passage tonight of Psalm 119, that here in this section, when we look at Psalm 119, 105 through 112, it's as if we could ask the question, what is God's word? And looking closely from this section, it's as if it's a threefold answer. Each one capturing, displaying what Paul said later in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're heading tonight. We're going to walk through, and again, in a fresh way, being stirred up by way of reminder to see this truth for life. What is God's word? First, simply, God's word is a guide. It's a guide. Verses 105 and 106, 105 especially, put in this wonderful way, this comprehensive sense, God's word is given to us to be this guide. Now, you look at verse 105, I'm sure you're familiar with it. In fact, we could be tempted to sing another song based off of these words. Some of you from the early 90s might remember. Like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith sang, you know, thy word, I'll spare you. Your word, the psalmist writes, again, this love song to God about his word, what does he tell us? It is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And such beautiful language, such a clear picture, giving to us this image, this answer, God's word is a guide. And you can picture it. Even to think, going back to the time that the psalmist writes this, whoever it might be, time long ago, far away, there's not electricity. You can't just pull out your phone and use it like a lot of us do, that's your main flashlight. In the ancient world, it's so dependent upon the sun, of course, but when the sun goes down, what do you do? You use a light, you use a lamp. 
how those even with a lamp, as commentators point out in most Israelite households, the lamp consisted of just a small clay dish filled with olive oil. Normally the dish would be pinched at one end to form a kind of spout in which they would insert a wick. Sometimes lamps would possess as many as four different spouts to multiply the burning wicks in the light they provided. They say one wick lamp produces as much light as one candle. You can think maybe in your home when the power goes out, a bad storm hits. Maybe you're looking for your flashlight. You can't find it or you find it, but the batteries are old. So what do you do? You reach for your nearest candle. By whatever method you can, you get that candle lit. And from that one simple light source, it gives light. It brightens the room. Maybe in your home, you're able to make your way around the house if it's a really bad storm and if you have one down into the basement. How that simple lamp, that simple light gives direction. And that's what the psalmist is saying about God's word. He says, your word, it's like that lamp that the person would hold It's not displaying everything, but it's giving enough light for just one step at a time. But then at the same time, this word, it's a light lightening up and showing the way for the path ahead. Like a flashlight and like a headlight. The psalmist's way of saying God's word is a guide. We could ask, okay, a guide for what? Well, remembering even what Paul said in 2 Timothy, it is this all-sufficient word. It's able to equip us and make us adequate for every good work. Remembering even what God says through Peter in 2 Peter, God has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That this word, God gives it as a comprehensive, all-sufficient guide for us, for how we are to live in this world. Not telling us everything about everything. Again, many of you have been through our membership class. You hear it said in our membership class. Uh, Pastor Kevin or Pastor Kerry walking through this section. God's word isn't a, a car manual guide. You don't open it up to figure out how you change the oil on your vehicle. That's not what it's intended to be. No, it's intended to be a guide comprehensively for us, for how we live, and the moral choices we make. Revealing to us who God is, who we are, What's this world we find ourselves in? What's wrong with the world that everyone seemingly acknowledges? There's something off. There's some problem. The Bible tells us. The Bible tells us how we can be freed from and saved from that problem. 
Bible tells us how we can live a life that brings God glory, that pleases him in every respect. Bible even tells us, as we said earlier in our prayer, of where things are heading, and if we've trusted in this God, where we will go to one day be with him. Comprehensively, all sufficiently, this guide, a lamp to our feet, whether it's very specific steps and actions that I need to take, or a light to my path, showing me the general direction that I need to go. You think if we didn't have this Bible, you ever consider what darkness we'd be in? Do you think if God never gave us his word, and yet we found ourselves on earth, what we would do, how we would live, Calvin refers to unbelievers that they're blinder than moles. Do you remember being in that state? Or even to think if God had never revealed his word, never given it, in like a a pitch black cave being blind, you and I bumping around trying to make sense of life on this earth. In fact, it's good for us to think about this. I've always been struck by some words John Murray wrote about this very reality. In fact, in some senses, often rebuked by these words, reproved by these words. Listen closely, speaking to this very issue. He said, it's possible for us to develop a certain kind of familiarity with the Bible so that we fail to appreciate the marvel of God's favor and mercy and wisdom in giving it to us. Murray writes, we need to stop and consider what hopeless darkness, misery, and confusion would be ours if we did not possess the Bible. We would be without God and without hope in the world endlessly stumbling over our own vain imaginings with respect to God, with respect to his will for us, with respect to our own nature, origin, destiny. You think if God had never given us this book, where would we turn? What guide would we have? To think, dear Christian, God has spoken. He's given us this word. He even gives it to us, not some mysterious code, a riddle that we're trying to decipher. Using human instruments, communicating in language that you and I can understand how he makes himself plain. He speaks to be heard. In fact, even its main message of this word, how sinful man can be redeemed and reconciled to holy God, so simple, so clear and obvious, a young child can open it up and read and understand. That's what this guide is. 
Well does the psalmist say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, we want to camp on this a bit further tonight. Can I give to you several reasons we ought to look at and treasure this guide? We've spoken of some already, but we want to give it to you in more rapid fire fashion. And stirring us all up by way of reminder that we would prize this word. First, why we ought to treasure this guide. Put simply, the Bible reveals who God is. We open up its pages. In fact, from the very beginning, the very first words of this book, the great triumphant indicative, the great declaration, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creating out of nothing, the God who always is, the God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who is above and separate and other than his creation. The God who is great, glorious, good, and gracious. You open up your Bible, you can begin to see and to behold, this is who God is. And then as a corollary, a second reason we ought to treasure this guide. This book reveals who I am. Who you are. Again, think, if we didn't have this book, we would be just like so many people out in the world today. Trying to make sense of our origin, where we came from. Thinking maybe we were just the product of the evolutionary process. Coming from nothing, going nowhere. What am I? Nothing really. Pretty depressing. But I open up this book that this God has graciously given, intended to be a guide, and I begin to read and understand I'm made uniquely. You're made uniquely. We've been made by this God for this God. Even from the very first pages, God made man in his image. True of every person, right? How old, how young, how strong, how weak. We'll even add out of the womb or certainly still in the womb. Revealing that we are creatures made in God's image, possessing a dignity, a worth, a value. But now, no doubt, third, another reason we ought to treasure this guide, not only does it reveal who God is and reveal who you and I are, it reveals our greatest problem. And everyone, especially, what, in the last few years, all's not well on planet Earth. Different people trying to come to the table with their comprehensive answer of what the issue is each one trying to offer a sweeping explanation. But only from this book do we understand our greatest problem is something that resides deep within every human heart. What problem would that be? 
Can you answer that for me tonight? Sin. That man's not just underprivileged. Man's not just a victim. Man's not just uneducated, underdeveloped. No, man has comprehensively, you and I together, even in our first parents, turning against this God, raising our fist at him, wanting to go our own path and our own way. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, it's painful for that to be revealed even on an individual level. Yet in revealing it, it's a good guide because then forth it leads us to the greatest news. Here and here alone, in the pages of Scripture, we learn of what this good God has done that we could be saved from this great problem, sin. What did this great God do? Well, he sent forth his Son in the fullness of time. Born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. So simple that young children memorize what God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Not something that we earn, not something that we work for, a gift graciously received when we look up and cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We ought to treasure this guide. It reveals who God is, reveals who you and I are. It reveals our greatest problem. It reveals the greatest news. It even gives encouragement and hope. It helps us understand where things are ultimately heading. It records and gives to us the words of our Savior at the end of John 16. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That he's gone to prepare a place that those who believe in him will one day be there where he is. And until now, the hope, the strength, the encouragement that we draw when we open up this wonderful guide. You know, you go even further, I think even specifically what the psalmist is getting at here, fifth, sorry, sixth, why we ought to treasure this guide, the Bible teaches the best way to live. You know, maybe we need to camp and think about this a little tonight. Because it's from God, the God who, after all, created the world, and orders all things, and he, the great creator, everything perfectly fashioned according to his design. If you want to know how to live in this world, that's our creator's world, well, wouldn't we want to follow what he says and how he tells us to live? Isn't that what we find when we open up the pages of Scripture? 
No doubt recorded for us the history of redemption and what God has done even to bring about the Savior, the Messiah that he's given, but then even very specific passages, specific commands, how God tells us here is how you ought to and must live. And if you do so, you bring him glory and you experience your good. You take even a whole book like Proverbs, Wisdom in this world, living according to God's design and pattern, playing by his rules, you could say. As J.C. Ryle said, the Bible can teach you everything you need to know, point out everything you need to believe, and explain everything you need to do. That's what's here. That's why it's seen as this guide, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Even getting so specific, God telling you men here tonight, here is what it is to be made man. You ladies here tonight, here is what God says it is that you are made woman. You find yourself within this gift of marriage God has given. God says, here is how husband you are to live. Here is how wife you are to live. Not just God's good suggestion. No, his good design and command followed after his pattern, experiencing the greatest blessing. You have children. God tells us how we ought to raise them. You find yourself with an employee or uh, an employer, how it is you are to work, God tells us. You find yourself here in the midst of the church body, how do we live and function with one another? What do we do? God tells us. How even do you and I relate to those outside of the church, out in the world? God tells us. I trust you know this already. But ought we not be stirred up by way of reminder to see how comprehensive this guide is? Not only that, the Bible teaches us the best way to die. The appointment you and I cannot miss. How the Bible reveals to us where our hope is to be placed. And if it's placed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we've been saved from our sin, and far from fearing death. Rather, for a Christian, death can suddenly be the final act of worship. Again, thinking of this book, J.C. Ryle said, here is the only book which can comfort a man in the last hours of his life. You take all of those reasons together, Maybe tonight in a fresh way, treasuring then this guide. Isn't that why then the psalmist, as he thinks of this guide, he then says in verse 106, I have sworn, I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. He understands how good it is, how comprehensive it is, a guide for living He then, with all that's within him, resolves. That's the language here. It's as if he swears an oath. He makes a covenant. 
God, all that I am and all that I have, I'm resolving, I'm committing to keep, to obey your righteous ordinances. What resolve? May we have the same here tonight. What is God's word then? First here tonight, we see it's a guide. But not only that, second, it's a guard. Verses 107 through 110, again, lest we think the psalmist has escaped, you know, into some place where he can just sit and read all day and not be distracted. Oh no, he comes back to life on earth, life like you and I experience. And we marvel to this point, all the psalmist has walked through. Here now again in verse 107, he says, I am afflicted. In fact, he goes further. First time he'll increase this to say, I'm exceedingly afflicted. We don't know the circumstances. I mean, all throughout, it's kept a bit veiled and anonymous. But at least here, he's at least thinking of what's going on on the inside. Something's happened that inwardly, it's as if he's at the point of despair. Maybe we could use the word depressed. Spiraled very low. And yet he looks to God's word, good model for us. He sees that it's a guide, but he sees that it's a guard. It's a guard that protects, protects from this internal despair and depression. He clings to it and he prays, revive me. It's as if he's saying, God, I don't know why things are the way they are on the inside. I don't know why I've spiraled low. God, will you not bring me up? Will you not inject life and vitality into me? And how does that happen? According to your word. Amazingly, in the midst of this deep despair, he says and prays and asks, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. Teach me your ordinances. It's as if even in the midst of his deep inward despair, he still has time to freely praise God from his own mouth and even ask God, continue to teach me. Show me what I need to learn and the way I ought to go. In fact, from this, one commentator said, the service God demands must not be reluctant, but willing. Freely, spontaneously, praise coming out of him, even while he finds himself deep down in despair. And as we said, he's asking God to teach him. As the commentator Brian Borgman said, how often do we settle in our suffering asking for nothing more than deliverance? You ever found yourself there? Deep down in despair and all you're doing is asking God, God, just get me out of this. 
It's okay to ask that, but maybe in the midst of that, also ask as the psalmist, God, God, teach me. Instruct me in the midst of this. Inwardly, there's that struggle, but then outwardly, there's more danger. Internal despair, but the word is also a guard against external danger. It seems as if he's facing more persecution. How desperate is it? You look at verse 109. He says in a poetic way, my life is continually in my hand. It's as if he's saying, I'm in danger of my life, God. Every moment, day to day, this could be it. This could be the end. That's how real the threat is. And yet, though that's the real threat, what does he again resolve to do? I do not forget your law. With all that he is, he clings to Scripture. As Spurgeon said, while he carried his life in his hand, he also carried the law in his heart. And he tells us in verse 110, and he's on the receiving end. The wicked have laid a snare for me. I mean, how many times have we seen this in this psalm? Again, it seems as if because he's so committed to God's word to humbly love it and obey it, that that's the very magnet that attracts this opposition. That there are those out there who fall into this category of the wicked, that they look at this psalmist, they look at him, oh, here's our game. Here's what we want to hunt. Again, the imagery, like hunting, they've laid the snare, they've laid this trap that the weak animal will come across and fall into. That's how they look at this godly person. They want to bring him down. And as he faces this, again, with his life in his hand, what does he resolve? I have not gone astray from your precepts. It's as if the psalmist he doesn't fear suffering. He fears sinning. And even while suffering and on the receiving end of persecution, he clings to God's word and he will not compromise. I will keep it. I will obey it. I will not forget it. You know, I was thinking, studying this, we read this, and I mean, do we do we really even know this reality in our own lives? How blessed and fortunate we are to live the time that we live, the country that we live. Sure, things have changed a lot in the last few years. You and I aren't, you know, numb to that. But we don't have it like believers presently do in other places of the world or like many, most Christians have for the last 2,000 years. I mean, we're sort of in the minority with this prosperity and blessing that we receive. 
We ought to recognize that and give thanks to God for that. But let's remember the norm, the pattern for Christians in the past. To name the name of Christ, to identify publicly, Jesus is my Lord. Your life would be taken in your hand. I mean, think of the early days in the New Testament. The fate of so many of the apostles, Paul and Peter themselves. Because they said Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. What was the fate that they faced? You think of the 100s and the 200s, even the early 300s, for so many Christians as the gospel spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. They were the ones on the outside. They were the ones looked at differently. They were the ones singled out. You're the threat to our society. You're the ones who are unloving because you don't bow to Caesar. You're the ones that we want to kill. Take even a figure like Polycarp. 86 years old because he will not bow to Caesar. He's taken to his martyrdom to be thrown and tossed before lions, which was just entertainment for unbelievers. And his final words, what was it Polycarp said? 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? There's someone who understood that the word is a guide. The word is also a guard. That he clung to as he clung to his Savior, even though it cost him his life. The word is a guide. The word is a guard. Third and finally, the word is a gift. Again, despite the circumstances, despite how rough and tough and intense it is, the psalmist stops and pauses God has given this gift. He says, verse 111, I've inherited your testimonies forever. For they are the joy of my heart. And he looks back at God's word. Even as an Old Testament Israelite, to speak of inheritance for so many, what they would think of, what was it that they inherited? What was it that they prized? Well, the promised land. That's what they inherited. That's what they prized. But here, thinking bigger than that, more precious than that, he looks at God's word. God, I've inherited your testimonies. You've given them to me as a gift. And as a result, inwardly, oh, the joy that they are, the joy of my heart, how he loves them, how he's satisfied by them. That's why earlier we've heard it. How sweet are your words to me, sweeter than honey, sweeter than fine honey from the honeycomb. 
That's why the psalmist will say in Psalm 19, your word is more precious to me than gold, yea, than fine gold. Sweeter to me than honey, honey from the honeycomb. The word's not drudgery. The word's not boring. It's the gift God has given, and it's the joy of his heart. No doubt even connected how it's a comprehensive guide, how it's a good guard, and certainly a gift. And in light of that, again, language of resolution, even inwardly asking God, I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. He looks at God's word and with all that he has, he wants to obey it. Certainly acknowledging he needs God's help and grace. But that's his inward resolve. Stirring up by way of reminder then, By means of this passage, let's understand clearly tonight how God's word is that guide and guard and gift. Some questions come up then for us to think through and discuss together. Uh, let's see, six total. We'll see if we get through all of them. You know, we walked through and tried to rehearse how this word is a guide. God intends it to be sufficient for all that we need for life on this earth. And yet, people typically look elsewhere for guidance, right? Let me ask you, question number one, where do people look for guidance today? I mean, we could take up the rest of our time, I bet. But we want to hear from you. The, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, how many came under that spell? And anything she said or anything she recommended, people drank in and followed for guidance. We laugh and chuckle, but you're absolutely right. Someone like her or what? There are certainly other figures. You know, he's captivated so many young men. Many people looking to someone like him for guidance. Jordan Peterson, Oprah. Dane, and then we'll go to our brother, Mr. Salter here. Astrology. Oh, yeah. True in the ancient world, still true today. Let me look up at the stars and look at the clipping in the magazine here. And hey, it's all aligning. But not really. Dane, what were you going to say? Government. Government. Got to be careful here. Maybe some things, good and right. But what, increasingly it seems... I mean, the whole world seems to be topsy-turvy, upside down. I think as John MacArthur says, government can't save you. 
So let's not look to it for ultimate guidance. A few more. Vicki. Your heart. But shouldn't I follow that? How funny, though, and how interesting. So many do just follow their heart. Feels good. Seems right. I have peace about it. But is that a sure guide for what to do and for how to live? Surely we know better. But what Proverbs 3 warns us, what are we to trust in and not lean upon? Trust in who? Trust in who? With what? And lean not on what? That's right, not on your own understanding. But sometimes we can do that. We trust in, we lean upon our heart and our own understanding. That's why we need this word at times to reprove us and correct us where we're in the wrong. Maybe a few more. Very broadly, yeah, people look into psychology. Can be correct in some things, even in just observation. But when it's really getting into matters of the inward person, isn't this a book that's all about the inward person? The inner man, the soul? Maybe one more. Liberal educators. Oh, yes. With radically different understanding of who humans are, what our problem is what salvation is. Okay, we've teased out some of those here tonight, but second, we can hear and acknowledge all of that, but we can even be tempted as Bible-believing Christians to close the pages of Scripture and look elsewhere for guidance to any one of these things. Why, Why do we do that? Why might we look elsewhere for guidance? To conform. Fear of man brings a snare. We want to keep up with the Joneses. That's a real thing. Because that we can compromise and begin to look elsewhere for guidance. Even that inner struggle a good example why we ought to do all we can to battle against the fear of man and cultivate a fear for God so that we're not caught in a situation like that, that we stick to the word as what guides us. Why else? You tease that out a little bit more. And sometimes we don't like feeling that. 
or watching someone like Oprah or listening to Jordan Peterson and, hey, maybe we're tracking with it, but then suddenly we don't like what we're hearing because maybe if we're falling out for guidance, we think we're in the wrong, we just turn it off. But when we open up this book comprehensively because God is the one over it all, he has every right and authority to speak and to tell us, here is what you ought to do. Here is what you ought not to do. Maybe one more. Why might we look elsewhere for guidance? Scott Lang, good to see you here tonight. Yeah, that kind of mucks things up a little bit. What, what effect does sin have upon us? Scott? Looking at you here. <laughs> if anyone else wants to help him out, but you, you answered it. Yeah, just keep, you know, that guilt keeps us from going in the Word. Yeah, and, and even in that, um, the conscience that's convicted or the guilt that we sense or the shame that we feel intended to be a good thing like you know the the light that comes up on your car on the dash we won't be annoyed by it but it's trying to show us hey something's off here you're needing some help and when that happens when there's sin that it should drive us to this God who will forgive us if we confess our sin to him because of sin yeah we tend to look then elsewhere for guidance Okay, that's all you know. good and true. We'll move to a third question. We want to hear from you specifically. What passages do you regularly turn to for guidance? Why? Getting specific here tonight. Thought we'd open it up. As you're making your way in the Christian life, what are some passages that you regularly remind yourself of to help you why do you turn there? Don't. Okay. Yes, Brian. Philippians four, four through eight. Philippians four, four through eight. Think on these things. Yes, that's what we ought to fill our minds with. You know, I find myself, I'll confess, often on what is true. In my mind, maybe I'm beginning to play out worst-case scenario. What if this? What if that? And then having to preach to myself, okay, but that's not real. What is real? What is true? And to think upon that. Did I see a hand over here? Stephen, yes. John 14, 6. Uh, through me. Critical guidance that each one of us needs, that we ought to remind ourselves of. Maybe one more passage? 
We got two here. I mean, we'll let you do a thumb war and the winner can share. wonderful verses. So much that we may not even be aware of, but to ask God who knows and sees all, search me, God. Bring to light what's in the heart. That's good. Um, let's see. Oh, for the sake of time. Okay, we'll put up the rest of the questions and we'll see maybe we'll pick one more. How has scripture guarded and protected you what maintains and strengthens your commitment to follow God's word? We'll end with this. What maintains and deepens your satisfaction with God's word? Thinking especially that God's word is a gift. It's the joy of his heart. What helps you maintain that? And not grow numb to that? Absolutely. It is living and active. If we take a big step back, yeah, it's, it really isn't boring. When we think maybe at times when we begin to think it's boring, maybe tying with what Scott said, could be that there's something going on inside, maybe sin, that's making me think that way. But then to cling to it, to be in it, even to think corporately the importance of regular diet, of exposition Sunday by Sunday, as we take in God's word. Even to prepare ourselves for that. On the Saturday night, asking already, God, will you show me your glory? God, will you help and strengthen uh, our pastor who opens up God's word? And as I sit there, that I will hear God speak his truth. And then to begin to see the wonder of it have a deepening satisfaction with it. More could be said, perhaps more should be said, but I think it'd be good for us to respond in singing. Let me pray, and then Ken, I think Joanna on the piano, they're going to come on up, and they're going to sing. Lead, sorry, we all will sing. Ken's going to lead us. Yes. Ken, you're doing a solo. No. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our study tonight. Again, to see how great, how glorious your word is. Will you help us that even clearly in our minds we'd have these categories? You've given us this guide, a guide that guards us and a gift from you that ought to be the joy of our heart. Help us, Lord, tonight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.